Hebrews chapter 11. As we continue our Hall of Faith journey, we now come to the second inductee that we will be introduced to this morning through our text. Let us begin by reading verses 5 and 6 together in our word, and then we'll look at them more closely. Now by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, that is God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he is the reward, rewards of those who seek him diligently. Enoch is one of the great mysteries of the Bible. So little is known about him from the Old and New Testament that many have looked to extra biblical sources to kind of fill in the blanks about the profile concerning Enoch. We know the Bible clearly tells us that Enoch was the seventh from Adam, that he lived 365 years, that he gave birth, or I should say his wife gave birth, let's be technically correct here, to Methuselah, and that Enoch had a very unique relationship and experience with God, for Enoch never died. Now, many wonder what the life of Enoch is truly supposed to illustrate for us as New Testament believers in Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews clearly takes Enoch as the second inductee into the hall of faith, and he places them before him before us for our consideration. But what shall our takeaway be from the life of Enoch that we know such a little about? Well, what's interesting to me is that there is more written about Enoch outside of the Bible than within the Bible that many have resorted to and pulled from to get all kinds of different understandings of the person Enoch, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But let us begin in Genesis chapter 5, verses 18 through 24, if you'll turn there with me in your Bible. Even his name which many of the Hebrew names carry significant meaning to them, when it comes to Enoch, no one is sure what his name actually means. So the general consensus from Jewish scholars was that his name meant dedicated. Now, the reason they came to that conclusion is because of his unique experience with God. I hate to say this about Enoch, but I will because I think it's appropriate. It's almost as if when I read into the history of Judaism, that Enoch became somewhat of a superhero to the Jewish people, a, a marvel, if you will, a uh, you know, DC comic, whichever one you feel is better. And as a result, he was spoken about with children, he was there were legends that were created concerning him. But again, all of this comes from those extra biblical sources. 
But as a result, Enoch now becomes one of the great mysteries that we are now challenged and confronted by here in the hall of faith to understand what we are to learn from him. Here's what we know. As I indicated last week, I think it's very important that as we go through the hall of faith, when we come to the different individuals, that you go back into the Old Testament, find where those individuals are given account, and read it for yourself to gain the background and the history needed to fully understand what the Hebrew writer is trying to say here in Hebrews chapter 11. Not only to look at the Old Testament examples, the number of places that Enoch may be mentioned, or that Noah may be mentioned, or Abraham may be mentioned, but also to take it into the New Testament. Because often these individuals were used as illustrations to help us understand New Testament doctrine, teaching. But when it comes to Enoch, we find him in the most uh, common places, in the, that is, in a list of genealogy which is interesting, and that's where we find him first here in Genesis chapter 5, verses 18 through 24. Now, when Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch, and Jared lived after he fathered Enoch another 800 years, and had other sons and daughters, and thus all the days of Jared was 962 years, and then he died. Now, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. That's the end of the information (laughs) that we are given concerning Enoch. And yet to the Jewish people, for him not experiencing death, and they understood that from the very beginning, that that's what was uh, being implied here, that he was not, it is carried away, translated, etc. From this life to the next, for God took him. God takes credit for the removal of Enoch. The next place of significance that we find Enoch mentioned outside of the realm of genealogies is actually in the small New Testament book of Jude, if you'll turn there with me. In Jude 14 and 15, we find that Enoch gives us insight to the end times, the prophecies concerning the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And why this is interesting, I will share with you in a moment. But in Jude, and there's only one chapter, so if your Bible has two or three chapters of Jude, I'd suggest you return it. But Jude chapter 1, verse 14, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now here's what's fascinating about this. You would think initially by reading this that Jude was quoting from an Old Testament passage and reminding us of a prophecy in which Enoch had made during his life here on this earth. But no prophecy is given. 
In fact, the only place that we find Enoch recorded for us is in the Genesis 5 passage in which we just read that gives no indication of this prophecy. This prophecy is actually found in a work that was created in 100 BC called the Book of First Enoch that Jude quotes. Therefore, quoting it under the, the guides of inspiration by the Spirit, showing us that this portion of what was uh, given in that book was actually true. It is a fascinating study. It is one of those incidents where uh, liberal scholars will challenge us then on the doctrine of inspiration. I think it is a straw man case that they make. For Paul used uh, texts from the lines of poetry in Acts 17 and in other places in Galatians um, that were common in that culture in that day. And this, therefore, doesn't pose a problem with inspiration, the trustworthiness that it is God-breathed. It just shows us that God's Spirit was moving amongst these men and they knew these things to be true. It also shows us that there is truth contained in these writings to a certain degree. He is not vindicating that all of 1st Enoch is, of course, inspired. Now, I'm giving you this information this morning that some may find confusing, and I'll be glad to spend time with you afterwards on it, but you need to know the arguments that individuals are rendering against the Bible today and why they don't hold up. I'm trying to prepare you in an apologetics manner so you can give an answer for the reason of your faith. And this is a question that many has questioned. How can this be inserted in here? Because the Spirit moved him to do so. We have no problem with that. Enoch existed. This particular notion is supported elsewhere in the New Testament by other sources. It's not the only verse written that would indicate that Jesus Christ is going to come back and return with a legion of his angels. We see that in Revelation 19. So that being said, we find ourselves confronted with a real man of mystery, this person of Enoch. And at best, much of the legend concerning Enoch comes from these extra-biblical sources, and I won't even call them historical sources, because that may imply that they are historically accurate. That's not necessarily the case. They simply were written around the same period of time, or back in, in the days of ancient history, and record events or sayings of these individuals that therefore must be challenged and scrutinized and so forth to see if they actually occurred. It's a fascinating study. The problem that we're having today, folks, is that some, not all, some are taking these extra-biblical sources to be in the same category and weight of in the inspired scriptures, and that cannot happen. Does that make sense? The Bible is the Bible. God made that clear. And therefore, we need to weigh these things. Not dismiss them, but weigh them in the light of the accuracy of the Scriptures. We promise here at Calvary we'll never dumb things down for you. We're going to give it to you as it is and let you process it and chew on it and, and think about it. And I believe it will better you in the long term to know instead of being you know, shielded from some of these arguments that would indicate some kind of inaccuracy with the scriptures because it doesn't indicate that at all 
again, it sounds good when they first initially state it, and then all of a sudden you hear the rebuttal, and you're like, well, no, then it's not nearly as waiting, uh, weighty as you make it out to seem at the beginning. And due to the mystery of Enoch, again, he is written about in the Apocrypha Book of Wisdom. This is a set of books that are found in the Catholic Bible that were written between the time of Malachi and Matthew. Apocrypha means in Greek doubtful origin, and they were not part of the canonical Bible when it was canonized. The canonization of the Bible happened way before the time of Constantine. That is another gross misunderstanding. Many believe that the Emperor Constantine got together with the Roman officials in the Christian church and they came up. These are the books that we are going to uh, you know, look at and we are going to recognize. There was 21 New Testament books recognized 200 years earlier in the early church before Constantine ever came onto the, onto the scene. And so that's another false argument. But these were the books that the Holy Spirit led the church to accept. And again, they were accepted way before the years of Constantine. And everything was scrutinized by them. And there was a test of canonization, which we can't get into today, that allowed them to be uh, qualified as canonical books. So the apocrypha books were dismissed for one reason or another. In those books, we have the character of God grossly displayed. I think it is in the book of Maccabees that I believe that God lies and so we know that God hates lying and cannot lie himself. And a book that portrays him in that way cannot be accurate to his character. So he is mentioned in the book of wisdom. He was, Enoch was found in one of the scrolls of the Dead Sea, the scroll of Sirach, which I find very interesting because it's very provoking. Let me read it to you. And I don't usually do this, but I want to for this morning. Listen to this. This is one of the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's Sirach 4416. If you want to look it up, uh, Dead Sea Scrolls are available online if you want to see them for yourself. It says, Enoch was found perfect, and he walked with Yahweh, and was taken as a sign of knowledge to every generation. He was perfect, huh? That's a problem theologically, isn't it? And so this is what needs to be scrutinized. And yes, they should be considered, but no, they are not inspired works of the Bible. Now, I know I'm not making a deep argument at this point. I'm just throwing it out there to you because if you had looked up and done your homework, you, had, you would have found that Enoch is talked about everywhere except apparently in the Bible, <laughs> He's talked everywhere. The Book of Wisdom, the uh, Kodak of Sidic, uh, Syrac of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Book of Pseudepigrapha, big word, means of unknown authorship uh, or under the um, false authorship of someone else. In the Pseudepigrapha, in the Book of Jubilee, he's mentioned as being the one who learned how to read and write for the very first time. We can't substantiate that. Enoch 1, 2, and 3. He had a three-volume set. Unfortunately, it wasn't written until 110 BC. So that was quite a few years after the line of Enoch and so forth. And so this information is out there, and much of the uh, individual understanding of Enoch has been drawn from those things. I mentioned that to you in case you did the homework and looked up Enoch for yourself and found a myriad of extra-biblical sources that pointed to the character of Enoch. But 
In Hebrews chapter 11, a book that we know to be inspired by God, we are told exactly why he was taken by God. And that was because of his faith. The Bible tells us clearly that we can live to please one of three different people groups. The life of an individual can be spent pleasing or living for one of three people groups. The first one is living to please ourself. That is indicated from Genesis to Revelation that it is possible to live and to expend our life simply living for ourselves. Secondly, we can live for other people. Living for other people can be a daunting thing to try to accomplish. Constantly feeling tossed to and fro by their every whims, trying to appease and to keep everyone happy all the time is an endeavor that very few have tried to find and to discover. But number three is the one that Enoch found. It appears that he understood that his life was temporal, that it was finite, that whatever number of years that he had here on this earth, it paled in the wake or the understanding of eternity. So Enoch chose to please God with the one life in which he had. And so by faith, Enoch believed God to exist, and he allowed that belief to draw him closer to God, believing that God was a rewarder of one who sought him diligently. Enoch made that decision, and I believe it is that decision that has led him to find himself now in the hall of faith. In Genesis chapter 5, what we do know from biblical sources is that Enoch lived in a very dark period of time. It was the decades, the centuries, working up to the flood in which Noah would save eight It was a decadent time. And yet day by day, for 365 years, Enoch walked with God. It is a word that is used in chapter 5 of Genesis, that day by day Enoch walked with God. When that verse was translated to the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, that word became the word pleased that Enoch pleased God. It is the same word that is used by the Hebrew writer, undoubtedly drawing from the, uh, from the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament. And they appear to be able to be used synonymously, interchanging one for the other. That if I choose to walk with God, I am choosing to please God with the life in which I have been given by God each and every day seeking him first because I know that he exists, I desire to draw near to him, and by doing so, I walk with him and in therefore I then please him. That's what Enoch is here for. That in the weight of the darkness of the time in which he lived, he was still able to walk with God and to please God. What a lesson for us today. You and I have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit to allow us to 
be obedient to God. It, it empowers us. It, 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 it gives us the capability of extending beyond ourselves in a supernatural way. We can find ourselves surrounded by peace in our mind and in our hearts even when our circumstances are so troubling that it would destable the most secure person on this earth. We can find love in our heart for one who absolutely hates us and treats us with contempt. We can love that person in return because of the work of the Holy Spirit within us. We can exercise self-control in a world in which it is guided and, and just given over to excess in almost every situation. But we can exercise self-control where we therefore don't have to pursue every appetite of the flesh that leads us in its direction that us to go. We can show kindness to one another through the power of the Holy Spirit. We can have strength like never before in the power of the Holy Spirit. It is this that has been given to us to allow us to walk each and every day with God, to please Him with our whole life, even in the time of darkness in which we find ourselves, shadowed by evil. And yet we can walk in the light through the power of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. Enoch did that. And that is why he is here today before us. For it is by faith. Now, let's go back to verse 1 of chapter 11 of Hebrews to remind ourselves that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of God, of, I'm sorry, the people of old received their commendation. Faith allows us to act to walk, to live in this world, allowing the invisible world that we know is there and know is controlled by God, and he, we know that he is on the throne and all his promises therefore reign, we can allow by faith to allow that invisible world to come in upon the physical world that we currently occupy today. The argument in science today and in philosophy is the argument of reality. What is reality? Is reality only the physical in which we can see, touch, hear, feel, etc.? But the Bible tells us that there's another reality that is equally important. That is the reality of God. It's the reality of what lies behind the proverbial curtain, if you will. That reality becomes a reality to us when we walk by faith each and every day. Trusting that faith. For example, I used this before, I'll use it again. To know that that reality of God exists is like knowing that a bridge exists across a cavern in the wilderness. I know that there's a bridge over that particular canyon and if I choose to cross it, that bridge is there and available to me. I can have that same knowledge concerning the, the aspect of the reality of God. When I come to that bridge, I can then believe that that bridge is created and designed to hold my way to allow me to cross from one side to the other. That's belief. 
Faith then would be the third step. And I think you can imagine where this is going. Faith would allow me to take the first step knowing that what I believe is accurate, stepping therefore on the bridge with all of my weight and crossing safely to the other side. That's faith. Faith takes me one step further. It was by faith that Enoch walked with God each and every day that he chose to glorify God with his personal life in the short period of time in which he had here on this earth and to live for God's glory. It was by faith that he did so. And it was by faith that he therefore was then taken and translated. God being pleased with him, God simply removed him from this world and brought him into his. In fact, there's a beautiful story that is told to Jewish children about Enoch. And that is the story of Enoch's last walk with God. The story of Enoch's last walk with God goes something like this. I wish I could say it in the Hebrew. I really wish I could. But it basically states that one morning as God met Enoch to once again walk with him during the course of that day, God said to Enoch, why don't you go and prepare a lunch for yourself and take it with you because we'll spend the whole day together. Enoch therefore did grabbed a lunch and took it and spent the entire day with God. And as the day progressed and it got later and later into the evening, Enoch saw that he was far away from home and said to God, God, should I not turn back and go home before it is dark? And God says, walk with me a little longer. Enoch said, okay. And so Enoch walked with God a little longer. And finally, evening fell, darkness was prevailing And God said to Enoch, as Enoch asked one further time, should I not turn around to head home? And God said to Enoch, Enoch, you're closer to my house now than you are to yours. Just come home with me. That's the story that is told to Jewish children. And they are told that story for the purpose of understanding that they can have a loving relationship with their God. It was a a story of endearment and it was a story to allow the Jewish children to see God as a loving father through it all. The writings of Enoch, Tertullian writes, very interesting, that the writings of Enoch were carried on the ark by Noah and therefore were saved from the flood. Now, you saw that we are going to see the ark. That's the actual ark, by the way. They found it. It's in Kentucky. (laughs) And, you know, they had a great cafeteria in there, as you saw, and so forth. Even some of the original animals are still found in the ark today. Those two kangaroos were pretty cool. When we go to the ark trip, I will personally buy dinner for the individual that remembers this question. And when, if we have an opportunity to ask one of the uh, scholars of Answers in Genesis, I want you to ask... Did Noah carry the writings of Enoch on the ark? I want to see what they say. If you remember that, I will buy you dinner. I will not remind you of that again. But an interesting thinking about Enoch and how he was viewed so highly simply because he was spared the grave. That's the way the Jewish people saw it, that he was spared the grave. Sheol in the Hebrew. That's what David said, don't leave my body in Sheol. And of course, he's speaking of the Messiah. Uh, and so forth. And, and Enoch was spared that, and the Jewish people endeared and you know, absolutely were fascinated by that fact that he was spared 
that incredible separation from God. But how did his faith manifest itself to be considered pleasing to God? That's why verse 6 of Hebrews 11 is given to us. In 5, we are introduced to him. Again, we find the two words, by faith, Enoch. Those are the indications by faith uh, that we are now looking at the next inductee to the hall of faith. Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. That word pleased there is the same word as walked with God. And then it says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. Now this is where the writer of Hebrews wants to explain to us how it was possible for Enoch to please God. But before we get there, let me emphasize once again, and I don't think I can say this enough. God desires that relationship with you. A love relationship to a father, to a son, a father, to a daughter, etc. He has nothing but the purest intents within this relationship. He desires to see you fulfill the plan and purpose that he has designed for you from the foundations of the world, whatever that may be. And that's so significant to him and important to him. Because he knows that that will bring you the greatest blessing here on this earth. Not the greatest ease, not the greatest, you know, uh, comfort, but the greatest blessing. And for all eternity, you will be blessed by fulfilling the plan and purpose that God has for you and rewarded accordingly. I can't emphasize this relationship aspect enough. When I read the Word of God, I'm not reading it in my devotions in a technical, academic manner. I'm reading it because it is the God who came by His grace to save me. It is His Word to me. He wants me to learn it so that I can draw closer to Him and fall more deeply in love with Him. And Enoch got that. And he walked with God each and every day. And how did he please God? By faith. And how did that faith manifest itself? Three different ways. Number one, it appears from chapter 11, verse 6, that it was his desire, Enoch's desire, to draw near to God. Enoch wanted to be as close to God as possible. He didn't want to be as close to the world as possible, but still yet kind of be sanctified safe, you know, one step over that line of sanctification. Enoch ran from that. He wanted to be completely as close to God as possible. You know, this is illustrated in the temple's construction. There was the Holy of Holies that only the high priest could go into, and then there were various courts and chambers and rooms that others were kept in, and this is as close as they could have gotten to God at any one particular time. If it was the court of the Gentiles were the farthest, then the court of the women were the next farthest, the, the court of the Jewish men were the next farthest, and then there was the inner court where the priest went, and then there was the Holy of Holies where only the high priest could go. So as you stood in one of those courts, you always continuously felt separated from God until Christ came. Then the incredible 
curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the inner chamber was torn from top to bottom, stating in that one illustration, that one act, that anyone could come directly into deep abiding fellowship with God the Father through the person of Jesus Christ. So I don't want to walk as close to the world as I possibly can and still be safe. I want to run as far away from the world and as close to Jesus as possible. You know, I I still get the question on occasion, you know. Now, dating, okay. What is too far in dating? Um, Driving in the same car is too far in dating. Uh, Texting is too far in dating. Uh, You can't even talk to them, okay. You have to go through your parents and then they to your boyfriend or girlfriend. I'm kidding you. Is there, no one's laughing. It's just like, oh my gosh, you got, he's really struck. I'm going to pray for Autumn this week, man. Yeah. But people are you know, continuously saying, how close is too close? Well, if you have to answer that question, you're too close already. Stay as far away from it as possible. If you don't feel comfortable holding hands, don't hold hands. If you want to wait for your kiss to be the first one that you make on your wedding day, then make that the priority. Don't go as far as you can. When it comes to drinking, there's a lot of drinking today. As you, many of you know, my mom was an alcoholic from the time I was adopted till the time almost before she died. Alcoholism devastated my mom's body. It destroyed her organs. She was uh, 80 pounds when she died. Her kidneys completely had failed. I saw the devastation of alcoholism up front. And I say this to you today because I don't think she would be embarrassed by it because she did not stop drinking until she accepted Jesus Christ in 2014. And she never drank again. But I saw the devastation of alcohol. I saw it firsthand. I am very fearful of alcohol. I'm just going to be upfront with you. We have been criticized because it appears that we don't condone you drinking wine or you uh, partaking in alcohol. If you choose to drink wine or have alcohol, that is between you and God. The Bible does not prohibit that. But may I ask you please to be careful. For the Bible does warn us about the excess of alcohol numerous times throughout the Old and New Testament. And sometimes it can start with just one drink. Because often I get the question, well, can I get buzzed? Is that okay and acceptable to God? Why would you even want to go there? Why would you even want to go that far? See, Enoch didn't want to have anything to do with the society around him. Now, the society around him was undoubtedly, you know, communicating the terms of what was right and wrong, just like our society is doing today. But his heart was, no, I want what what God wants for me. So therefore, I'm not going to be drunk with wine, but I'm going to be filled with the Spirit. That's what he desired. And again, I want to make it clear. We're not going to judge you if you have a glass of wine. We're not going to judge you if you have a a beer or, or a glass of alcohol. I personally don't partake. I don't, do, I don't drink, period. And neither does my wife. And we choose not to do that. Nobody's forcing us. We don't do it because we don't want to stumble anybody first and foremost and because I have a healthy fear of it. I'm just coming out and saying that. Destroyed, destroyed my mom. Destroyed our family. I don't need it, right? 
In fact, I've never heard anyone start drinking and said, wow, I finally found God in a brand new way, you know. It was the missing piece of my Christianity. I knew he turned water into wine for some reason, you know. Come on, guys. We're, we're smarter than that, right? Enoch's whole heart, I say this because his whole heart was number one, he wanted to draw near to God. He wanted to be as close to God as possible. And to do that, because he knew that his drawing near to God would be met in a reciprocal fashion that God would then draw near to him. This is consistent with what James says in James 4a, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That was Enoch's heart. I want to draw near to God to allow God to draw near to me. That was his heart's desire. And that's what he exampled for us. And how he did this is found in the next two portions of verse 6. And quickly, we'll go through these. Number one, he believed that God existed. He knew that God was a reality. That God was real. He was looking and understood that this earth is only temporal in its nature and heaven is eternal. He understood the character of God displayed in the minimal manner in which he had it displayed to him up until that point. Undoubtedly, he learned from Adam and Eve about the horrendous fall in which they incurred and then brought upon sin to the whole world. Let us also understand that his understanding of the existence of God allowed him to walk and to live as God was a reality in his life. Let me ask you a question. Would we be so quick to sin if God was truly a reality in our life? Think about that. You know, I had a Sunday school teacher say it to me this way. Next time you're thinking about ripping off those baseball cards from the drugstore, which I had done the week before. Now, this was, this was a while ago. This wasn't just last week. Okay, come on now. Some of you are looking at me like, oh, is he qualified? Um, I was a little boy, and she said to me, would you do that if Jesus was standing right next to me? And I said to her, in all seriousness, I go, it depends on if he was looking or not. <laughs> you know, the heart is desperately wicked. <laughs> Who can know it? But think about that for a moment. It's such a practical little thing. You know, God with me, would I engage in such sin? And the answer is no. But God is with you. All things are open and naked unto him. If you walk as God to, were to exist, you are not going to sin as readily or as quickly as you would if you simply dismissed the idea of his existence. That was Enoch. You know, Enoch knew that God truly existed. And therefore, it was a reality in Enoch's life. Now, there are many people who say they believe in God and they act and live as if he is completely uh, unreal. That he doesn't truly exist. But Enoch, he believed that God did exist. Secondly, he also believed that God was a rewarder of those who diligently sought him. And his idea was that I can enjoy this world for a temporal moment even the 365 years in which he was allotted, or I can live for eternity, spending my life here for eternal purposes and eternal reward. So by faith, he was willing to sacrifice his maybe personal desires and his 
personal appetites that would enjoy this world in a sinful manner at this moment. And he said, no, I'm going to live for the glory of God. I'm going to allow God to do what he wants in and through me for the purposes of his glory. And therefore, I'm going to live for eternity. Do you think that for a moment, if eternity wasn't a reality, that Jesus Christ would have gone through the crucifixion in which he did? In fact, the reason I ask that is because Jesus prays in John 17. And he says, let them see me glorified once again. He saw it. I've experienced eternity, he's saying. I know what it's like to be at your right hand. I want to go back there. That was more important to him at the moment than his own personal well-being, allowing him, therefore, to suffer the cruel treatment of the cross. So to draw near to God, we must believe that God exists. And number two, we must believe that he cares and allows us to draw near to him, and therefore he will draw near to us. One wrote this, he said, God does not reward the sleepy-eyed, complacent, non-thinker, half-interested, worldly-minded pleasure seeker. God rewards those who diligently seek to know and to follow him. The idea is that we must be earnest and persevere and endure to the end in our pursuit of the things of God. And Barclay wrote, he said, we must believe not only that God exists, but also that God cares. And without that deep conviction, faith in a biblical sense is not a possibility. Making God the reality, making God the focal point of our individual lives. We can live for ourselves. We can live for others, which sounds magnanimous at the moment, but if we are not living for God, living for ourselves will will eventually cause us to die. Living for others merely will also end in death. It is only living for God like Enoch that we will find eternal life. And it begins by believing that he exists and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. How can you walk with God each and every day? Number one, listen, write these down. Here's how you can walk and live with God. Seek God on a daily basis, excuse me. Number one, it starts with prayer. How is your prayer life doing in 2018? Do you spend time every day in prayer? Because I'd really encourage you. I don't think it's an option any longer. I do think it's a necessity for the believer to prepare themselves each and every day in prayer. Talking to God. And many are uh, reluctant to pray because they don't think they know how. But then when they talk with me, they're beautiful conversationalists. And I said, it's the same thing. Just talk to God. Just sit there and just share with God your heart, your mind. And just spend time with him. He's looking forward each and every day. Since my daughter's been at college, you know, the house has been much quieter. It's kind of wonderful. (laughs) And it's funny because, you know, she comes home and we call it, it's like the arrival of, you know, Hurricane Autumn. And the house is all neat and straight, and then she comes home, and it's like the Tasmanian devil around the house. And I then begin to count the hours that I drive her back to school, you know. 
I mean, even the dog hides in the closet. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And then the time comes where I'm driving her back to school and we drop her off and we say our goodbyes and I start driving back. And you know what immediately happens as I start driving back? I miss her. Can't wait to see her again. Just the heart of a dad. But God's not like me, thank God. He always likes to spend time with you. He knows all of your faults and all of your weaknesses and all of your frailties and he is completely understanding of them. And he will sit with you and talk with you as long as you desire to sit and talk with him. And he'll never shoo you off. He'll never count down the minute. He'll never blow you off for another appointment. He won't put you on hold. He won't say, send your prayer an email or text me later. He's always there to spend time with you as you pray. And number two, reading his word. But not just reading it, meditating on it, chewing on it thinking about it during the course of the entire day as you read a portion of scripture before you leave for work or school in the morning and just let it saturate your mind and your heart it's amazing you know how god will use it just the other day i was at the gym and i was i was on the treadmill and i was uh, working out and i was thinking about the verse that i read in this morning and i had my music just blaring and and, and i guess i said out loud oh god i get it and I just saw everybody else on the treadmills go like this, and I'm like, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Because I, I, it was like poof, epiphany, you know? It was just absolutely epiphany. The verse was, you know, physical exercise profits a little. <laughs> Shut the plane. No, I'm kidding. Uh, but it was just amazing. Spending time in his word, thinking about it, letting it saturate your mind and heart. How about worshiping God? putting in a CD in the car, if you still have CDs or MP3s or Sirius or whatever it may be. Some of you may still have A-tracks. God bless you. We love you. The other day, I was driving, and I saw a gentleman in the car next to me, and he was just singing at the top of his lungs. And I had my music on, and uh, and he had his on, so I didn't really understand what he was doing at first. But right before it turned green, I just saw him go like this, Oh, Lord! I was like, he's gone. He's worshiping. He is worshiping. I want to follow that guy. You know, he was just going at it. He didn't care what happened next, you know. He was in the presence of God. He was worshiping in his car, just spending time to worship the Lord every single day. Not only through singing, just praising him for being the God in whom he is. Thanking him for what you have been blessed with each and every day. Number four, walking in self-discipline. You will grow in your relationship with God by avoiding those things that will distract you and take you away from the Lord. And he doesn't do this to punish you. He does this to keep you safe. He knows that there are consequences that uh, inevitably come in the wake of certain sin. And he says, I want to spare you from all of that. I want you to feel like you have a clean conscience before me. That's the number one reason people don't pray. I've recently been hearing is because they feel like they can't approach God because they're not clean. Christ has made you clean. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Go to God. Acting in self-discipline will cause you to grow deeper in your life. And here's the real awesome part of it. 
I hate calling it self-discipline. Let's call it for what it is, spirit-disciplined, right? Because the spirit helps us in our self-discipline. He allows us to accomplish what we personally cannot accomplish ourselves. For one of the fruit of the spirit is self-discipline. Let us understand that God is with us in all of these things and desires that relationship. And like Enoch, we can walk with God, please God, by faith each and every day, knowing that we can draw near to him because we believe that he exists and he's the rewarder of those who seek him diligently.